Section 50 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 15, Part 5. Wit Suntide came just before her examination. She was to have a few days of rest. Dorothy had inherited her patrimony and had taken a cottage in Sussex. She invited them to stay with her. They went down to Dorothy's neat low cottage at the foot of the downs. Here they could do as they liked. Ursula was always yearning to go to the top of the downs. The white track wound up to the rounded summit. And she must go. Up there she could see the channel a few miles away, the sea raised up and faintly glittering in the sky. The Isle of Wight a shadow lifted in the far distance, the river winding bright through the patterned plain to seaward, Arundel Castle a shadowy bulk, and then the rolling of the high, smooth downs, making a high, smooth land under heaven, acknowledging only the heavens in their great, sun-glowing strength, and suffering only a few bushes to trespass on the intercourse between their great, unabatable body and the changeful body of the sky. Below she saw the villages and the woods of the Weald, and the train running bravely, a gallant little thing, running with all the importance of the world over the water meadows and into the gap of the downs, waving its white steam, yet all the while so little. So little, yet its courage carried it from end to end of the earth, till there was no place where it did not go. Yet the downs, in magnificent indifference, bearing limbs and body to the sun, drinking sunshine and sea-wind and sea-wet cloud into its golden skin, with superb stillness and calm of being, was not the downs still more wonderful? The blind, pathetic, energetic courage of the train as it steamed tinnily away through the patterned levels to the sea's dimness, so fast and so energetic, made her weep. Where was it going? It was going nowhere. It was just going so blind, so without goal or aim, yet so hasty. She sat on an old prehistoric earthwork and cried, and the tears ran down her face. The train had tunneled all the earth, blindly and uglily. And as she lay face downwards on the downs, that were so strong, that cared only for their intercourse with the everlasting skies, and she wished she could become a strong mound smooth under the sky, bosom and limbs bared to all winds and clouds and bursts of sunshine. But she must get up again and look down from her foothold of sunshine, down and away at the patterned level earth, with its villages and its smoke and its energy. So short-sighted the train seemed, running to the distance, so terrifying in their littleness the villages, with such pettiness in their activity. Skrebinski wandered dazed, not knowing where he was or what he was doing with her. All her passion seemed to be to wander up there on the downs, and when she must descend to earth, she was heavy. Up there, she was exhilarated and free. She would not love him in a house any more. She said she hated houses, and particularly she hated beds. There was something distasteful in his coming to her bed. She would stay the night on the downs, up there, he with her. It was midsummer. The days were glamorously long. At about half-past ten, when the bluey-black darkness had at last fallen, 
They took rugs and climbed the steep track to the summit of the downs, he and she. Up there, the stars were big. The earth below was gone into darkness. She was free up there with the stars. Far out, they saw tiny yellow lights, but it was very far out, at sea or on land. She was free up among the stars. She took off her clothes and made him take off all his and they ran over the smooth, moonless turf a long way, more than a mile from where they had left their clothing, running in the dark, soft wind, utterly naked, as naked as the downs themselves. Her hair was loose and blue about her shoulders. She ran swiftly, wearing sandals, when she set off on the long run to the dew pond. In the round dew pond, the stars were untroubled. She ventured softly into the water grasping at the stars with her hands. And then suddenly she started back, running swiftly. He was there, beside her, but only on sufferance. He was a screen for her fears. He served her. She took him. She clasped him, clenched him close, but her eyes were open, looking at the stars. It was as if the stars were lying with her and entering the unfathomable darkness of her womb, fathoming her at last. It was not him. The dawn came. They stood together on a high place, an earthwork of the Stone Age men, watching for the light. It came over the land. But the land was dark. She watched a pale rim on the sky, away against the darkened land. The darkness became bluer. A little wind was running in from the sea behind. It seemed to be running to the pale rift of the dawn, and she and he, darkly, on an outpost of the darkness, stood watching for the dawn. The light grew stronger, gushing up against the dark sapphire of the transparent night. The light grew stronger, whiter, then over it hovered a flush of rose. A flush of rose, and then yellow, pale, new-created yellow, the whole quivering and poisoning momentarily over the fountain on the sky's rim. The rose hovered and quivered, burned, fused to flame, to a transient red, while the yellow urged out in great waves, thrown from the ever-increasing fountain, great waves of yellow flinging into the sky, scattering its spray over the darkness, which became bluer and bluer, paler, till soon it would itself be a radiance, which had been darkness. The sun was coming. There was a quivering, a powerful, terrifying swim of molten light. Then the molten source itself surged forth, revealing itself. The sun was in the sky, too powerful to look at. And the ground beneath lay so still, so peaceful. Only now and again a cock grew. Otherwise, from the distant yellow hills to the pine trees at the foot of the downs, everything was newly washed into being, in a flood of new golden creation. It was so unutterably still and perfect with promise, the golden-lighted, distinct land, that Ursula's soul rocked and wept. Suddenly, he glanced at her. The tears were running over her cheeks. Her mouth was working strangely. "'What's the matter?' he asked, after a moment's struggle with her voice. "'It is so beautiful,' she said, looking at the glowing, beautiful land. It was so beautiful, so perfect and so unsullied. He too realized what England would be in a few hours' time, 
a blind, sordid, strenuous activity, all for nothing, fuming with dirty smoke and running trains and groping in the bowels of the earth, all for nothing. A ghastliness came over him. He looked at Ursula. Her face was wet with tears, very bright, like a transfiguration in a refrigerant light. Nor was his the hand to wipe away the burning bright tears. He stood apart, overcome by a cruel ineffectuality. Gradually a great helpless sorrow was rising in him. But as yet he was fighting it away, he was struggling for his own life. He became very quiet and unaware of the things about him, awaiting, as it were, her judgment on him. They returned to Nottingham. The time of her examination came. She must go to London. But she would not stay with him in a hotel. She would go to a quiet little pension near the British Museum. Those quiet residential squares of London made a great impression on her mind. They were very complete. Her mind seemed imprisoned in their quietness. Who was going to liberate her? In the evening, her practical examinations being over, he went with her to dinner at one of the hotels down the river, near Richmond. It was golden and beautiful, with yellow water and white and scarlet-striped boat awnings and blue shadows under the trees. "'When shall we be married?' he asked her. Quietly, simply, as if it were a mere question of comfort. She watched the changing pleasure traffic of the river, he looked at her golden, puzzled museau. The knot gathered in his throat. I don't know, she said. A hot grief gripped his throat. Why don't you know? Don't you want to be married? He asked her. Her head turned slowly, her face, puzzled like a boy's face, expressionless because she was trying to think, looked towards his face. She did not see him, because she was preoccupied. She did not quite know what she was going to say. I don't think I want to be married, she said, and her naive, troubled, puzzled eyes rested a moment on his, then traveled away, preoccupied. Do you mean never or just not yet? he asked. The knot in his throat grew harder. His face was drawn as if he were being strangled. I mean never, she said out of some far self which spoke for once beyond her. His drawn, strangled face watched her blankly for a few moments. Then a strange sound took place in his throat. She started, came to herself, and horrified, saw him. His head made a queer motion. The chin jerked back against the throat. The curious, crowing, hiccuping sound came again. His face twisted like insanity, and he was crying crying blind and twisted as if something were broken which kept him in control. Tony, don't, she cried, starting up. It tore every one of her nerves to see him. He made groping movements to get out of his chair. But he was crying uncontrollably, noiselessly, with his face twisted like a mask, contorted, and the tears running down the amazing grooves in his cheeks. Blindly, his face always this horrible working mask. He groped for his hat, for his way down from the terrace. It was eight o'clock, but still brightly light. The other people were staring. In great agitation, part of which was exasperation, she stayed behind, paid the waiter with a half-sovereign, took her yellow silk coat, then followed Skrebensky. 
She saw him walking with brittle, blind steps along the path by the river. She could tell by the strange stiffness and brittleness of his figure that he was still crying. Hurrying after him, running, she took his arm. Tony, she cried, don't. Why are you like this? What are you doing this for? Don't. It's not necessary. He heard, and his manhood was cruelly, coldly defaced. Yet it was no good. He could not gain control of his face. His face, his breast, were weeping violently as if automatically. His will, his knowledge had nothing to do with it. He simply could not stop. She walked, holding his arm, silent with exasperation and perplexity and pain. He took the uncertain steps of a blind man, because his mind was blind with weeping. Shall we go home? Shall we have a taxi? he said. He could pay no attention. Very flustered, very agitated, she signaled indefinitely to a taxi cab that was going slowly by. The driver saluted and drew up. She opened the door and pushed Stravinsky in, then took her own place. Her face was uplifted, the mouth closed down, she looked hard and cold and ashamed. She winced as the driver's dark red face was thrust round upon her, a full-blooded animal face with black eyebrows and a thick, short-cut mustache. "'Where to, lady?' he said, his white teeth showing. Again, for a moment, she was flustered. Forty, Rutland Square,' she said. He touched his cap and stolidly set the car in motion. He seemed to have a league with her to ignore Skrebinski. The latter sat as if trapped within the taxicab, his face still working, whilst occasionally he made quick slight movements of the head to shake away his tears. He never moved his hands. She could not bear to look at him. She sat with face uplifted and averted to the window. At length, when she had regained some control over herself, she turned again to him. He was much quieter. His face was wet and twitched occasionally. His hands still lay motionless. But his eyes were quite still, like a washed sky after a rain, full of a wan light and quite steady, almost ghost-like. A pain flamed in her womb for him. I didn't think I should hurt you, she said, laying her hand very lightly, tentatively, on his arm. The words came without my knowing. They didn't mean anything, really. He remained quite still, hearing, but washed all wan and without feeling. She waited, looking at him, as if he were some curious, not understandable creature. You won't cry again, will you, Tony? Some shame and bitterness against her burned him in the question. She noticed how his mustache was soddened wet with tears. Taking her handkerchief, she wiped his face. The driver's heavy, stolid back remained always turned to them, as if conscious but indifferent. Skrebensky sat motionless while Ursula wiped his face, softly, carefully, and yet clumsily, not as well as he would have wiped it himself. Her handkerchief was too small. It was soon wet through. She groped in his pocket for his own. Then, with its more ample capacity, she carefully dried his face. He remained motionless all the while. Then she drew his cheek to hers and kissed him. His face was cold. Her heart was hurt. She saw the tears welling quickly to his eyes again. 
as if he were a child. She again wiped away his tears. By now, she herself was on the point of weeping. Her underlip was caught between her teeth. So she sat still, for fear of her own tears, sitting close by him, holding his hand warm and close and loving. Meanwhile, the car ran on, and a soft midsummer dusk began to gather. For a long while, they sat motionless. Only now and again her hand closed more closely, lovingly over his hand, then gradually relaxed. The dusk began to fall. One or two lights appeared. The driver drew up to light his lamps. Skorbinski moved for the first time, leaning forward to watch the driver. His face had always the same still, clarified, almost childlike look, impersonal. They saw the driver's strange, full, dark face peering into the lamps under drawn brows. Ursula shuddered. It was the face almost of an animal, yet of a quick, strong, wary animal that had them within its knowledge, almost within its power. She clung closer to Skrebinski. My love, she said to him, questioningly, when the car was again running in full motion. He made no movement or sound. He let her hold his hand. He let her reach forward, in the gathering darkness, and kiss his still cheek. The crying had gone by. He would not cry any more. He was whole in himself again. My love, she repeated, trying to make him notice her. But as yet, he could not. He watched the road. They were running by Kensington Gardens. For the first time, his lips opened. Shall we get out and go into the park? he asked. Yes, she said, quietly, not sure what was coming. After a moment, he took the tube from its peg. She saw the stout, strong, self-contained driver lean his head. Stop at Hyde Park Corner. The dark head nodded. The car ran on just the same. Presently, they pulled up. Skrebinski paid the man. Ursula stood back. She saw the driver salute as he received his tip, and then, before he set the car in motion, turn and look at her, with his quick, powerful animal's look, his eyes very concentrated, and the whites of his eyes flickering. Then he drove away into the crowd. He had let her go. She had been afraid. Skrebinski turned with her into the park. A band was still playing, and the place was thronged with people. They listened to the ebbing music, then went aside to a dark seat, where they sat closely, hand in hand. Then, at length, as out of the silence, she said to him, wondering, What hurt you so? She really did not know at this moment. When you said you wanted never to marry me, he replied, with a childish simplicity. But why did that hurt you so? she said. You needn't mind everything I say so particularly. I don't know. I didn't want to do it, he said humbly, ashamed. She pressed his hand warmly. They sat close together, watching the soldiers go by with their sweethearts, the lights trailing in myriads down the great thoroughfares that beat on the edge of the park. I didn't know you cared so much, she said, also humbly. I didn't he said. I was knocked over myself. But I care. 
all the world. His voice was so quiet and colorless, it made her heart go pale with fear. My love, she said, drawing near to him. But she spoke out of fear, not out of love. I care all the world. I care for nothing else, neither in life nor in death, he said, in the same steady, colorless voice of essential truth. Then for what? she murmured duskily. Then for you, to be with me. And again she was afraid. Was she to be conquered by this? She cowered close to him, very close to him. They sat perfectly still, listening to the great, heavy, beating sound of the town, the murmur of lovers going by, the footsteps of soldiers. She shivered against him. You are cold, he said. A little. We will go and have some supper. He was now always quiet and decided and remote, very beautiful. He seemed to have some strange cold power over her. They went to a restaurant and drank Chianti, but his pale wan look did not go away. Don't leave me tonight, he said at length, looking at her, pleading. He was so strange and impersonal. She was afraid. But the people of my place, she said, quivering. I will explain to them. They know we are engaged. She sat pale and mute. He waited. Shall we go? He said at length. Where? To an hotel. Her heart was hardened. Without answering, she rose to acquiesce. But she was now cold and unreal. Yet she could not refuse him. It seemed like fate, a fate she did not want. They went to an Italian hotel somewhere and had a somber bedroom with a very large bed, clean but somber. The ceiling was painted with a bunch of flowers and a big medallion over the bed. She thought it was pretty. He came to her and cleaved to her very close, like steel cleaving and clinching on her. Her passion was roused. It was fierce, but cold. But it was fierce and extreme and good, their passion this night. He slept with her fast in his arms. All night long he held her fast against him. She was passive, acquiescent. But her sleep was not very deep, nor very real. She woke in the morning to a sound of water dashed on a courtyard, to sunlight streaming through a lattice. She thought she was in a foreign country and Skrebensky was there, an incubus upon her. She lay still, thinking, whilst his arm was round her, his head against her shoulders, his body against hers, just behind her. He was still asleep. She watched the sunshine coming in bars through the persens, and her immediate surroundings again melted away. She was in some other land, some other world, where the old restraints had dissolved and vanished, where one moved freely, not afraid of one's fellow men, nor wary, nor on the defensive, but calm, indifferent, at one's ease. Vaguely, in a sort of silver light, she wandered at large, and at ease. The bonds of the world were broken. This world of England had vanished away. She heard a voice in the yard below, calling, Oh, Jovan! Oh, 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 Jovan! And she knew she was in a new country, in a new life.
It was very delicious to lie thus still, with one soul wandering freely and simply in the silver light of some other, simpler, more finely natural world. But always there was a foreboding waiting to command her. She became more aware of Skrebinski. She knew he was waking up. She must modify her soul, depart from her further world, for him. She knew he was awake. He lay still with a concrete stillness, not as when he slept. Then his arm tightened almost convulsively upon her, and he said, half timidly, Did you sleep well? Very well. So did I. There was a pause. And do you love me? He asked. She turned and looked at him, searchingly. He seemed outside her. I do, she said. But she said it out of complacency and a desire not to be harried. There was a curious breach of silence between them, which frightened him. They lay rather late, then he rang for breakfast. She wanted to be able to go straight downstairs and away from the place when she got up. He was happy in this room, but the thought of the publicity of the hall downstairs rather troubled her. A young Italian, a Sicilian, dark and slightly pockmarked, buttoned up in a sort of gray tunic, appeared with the trays. His face had an almost African imperturbability, impassive, incomprehensible. One might be in Italy, Skrebinski said to him genially. A vacant look, almost like fear, came on the fellow's face. He did not understand. This is like Italy, Skrebinski explained. The face of the Italian flashed with a non-comprehending smile. He finished setting out the tray and was gone. He did not understand. He would understand nothing. He disappeared from the door like a half-domesticated wild animal. It made Ursula shudder slightly, the quick, sharp-sighted, intent animality of the man. Skrebinski was beautiful to her this morning. His face softened and transfused with suffering and with love, his movements very still and gentle. He was beautiful to her, but she was detached from him by a chill distance. Always she seemed to be bearing up against the distance that separated them. But he was unaware. This morning he was transfused and beautiful. She admired his movements, the way he spread honey on his roll, or poured out the coffee. End of section 50